Amen. Please turn with me to 1 Corinthians chapter 5. As you're turning there, let me remind you that this Tuesday, October 7th, uh, 8 to 9.30, we're going to have another prayer time for our third site. So even if you're not planning on going to that third site, this is something we're, we're uh, really going after as a church, Anderson Campus, Southwood Campus, and um, acknowledging that we don't have the, the cleverness or the ingenuity or the resources anyway to, to pull this off. So we're holding nights of prayer where we can just humble ourselves before God and ask for his wisdom and his guidance and his power. So I encourage you to join us. It's going to be next Tuesday. 8 to 9.30, Southwood Foyer. Not here this next week, we'll be in Southwood. I recall a time when um, my kids were, were much smaller, and uh, it seemed like we were always addressing the same issues with them over and over and over again. We were kind of going after the same issues, disciplining over the same issues, and it, it didn't seem to be making any traction on those particular issues. And I was uh, talking to a friend of mine who's a little bit older, a little bit wiser, further down the road. And parenting, and I asked him, I said, so when will my kids get it? And uh, his response to me was, he said, well, Brian, when do you think you're going to get it? <laughs> By which he meant, I suspect that there are issues in your life, Brian, that you keep bringing back to God over and over and over again. And God, in his kindness and patience, keeps working with you on those issues. He's kind, he's patient, he's truthful, he's direct. The same issues over and over. Sometimes in our lives, as Christians, uh, there are matters of sin that seem to get a hold of us and grab us, and they become so deep and so uh, entrenched in our lives, and they're so serious in the consequences for us and for others, that the church as a whole has to step in on behalf of Jesus Christ and confront those issues and correct those issues. That's called a church discipline. Now, if you're visiting with us for the first time this morning, I'm sorry. <laughs> I mean, I'm really glad you're here, but there's a part of me that's, oh gosh, as I looked at the calendar, what's coming up, and we have baptisms, and we're talking about church disciplines, I kind of thought, gosh, wouldn't it be great to talk about something a little bit lighter than church discipline? But uh, 1 Corinthians 5 actually follows 1 Corinthians 4, and so here we are this morning. We have been studying the book of 1 Corinthians, and the big idea is this. The Corinthian Christians don't look a lot different from the world. They're being swept along in the culture surrounding them. And Paul writes to them that they need to stop. And they need to turn around and they need to move move upstream. They need to move against the flow of the culture and look like Jesus and not like the world. And he began by addressing the issue of divisions in the church, which had resulted because of pride and arrogance among them. Now, chapter 5 he turns to addressing some very specific sins. That's where we pick up. In 1 Corinthians chapter 5, I want you to read with me verse 1. Paul writes, It is actually reported that there is immorality among you, an immorality of such a kind as does not exist even among the Gentiles, that someone has his father's wife. Actually, two sins that Paul addresses here in chapter 5. The first is the sin of the individual, the sin of a particular man, and it is unrepentant incest. A man has his father's wife, which was clearly outside of the boundaries of the Levitical law, but Paul argues it's not just outside of the boundaries of the Levitical law. Even Gentiles don't accept this kind of behavior, which is really saying something if you think about the fact that Paul's talking to Corinthians, because the name Corinth was synonymous with immorality. 
And they put up with a lot. They put up with prostitution and homosexuality and all kinds of immorality associated with their false worship and their idol worship. And Paul says, but even these people who are known as Corinthians set a boundary somewhere and they don't accept what you have accepted inside the boundaries of the body of Christ. But for Paul, the bigger issue is not simply that individual sin, but it is the church's sin, which is silence. They are unwilling to confront the sin among one of their members. Read with me verse 2. Paul says, You have become arrogant, and you have not mourned instead, so that the one who had done this deed would be removed from your midst. Paul says, you have become arrogant. You you haven't even mourned. You are puffed up. You are so proud. You call yourselves mature. You think of yourselves as wise and spiritually gifted, but you are unwilling to grieve and mourn and ache over the sin in your midst and do something about it. So this is an Old Testament concept of mourning, which meant that the community owned the sin of the individuals because the community understood that the sin of an individual affected the entire group. You see this in the prophets frequently as they pray and they confess sin before the Lord. They're not just confessing their own individual sin. They're confessing the sin of the community, the sin of the covenant people, the sin of the nation. They're owning it because they understand it affects all of them. Paul says you should mourn in this way because his sin is your sin. And that mourning should lead you to act. But you haven't acted. You've remained silent over it. Why? Well, there are a variety of reasons, possibilities that they may have stayed silent. One is... Maybe that their, their theology was just really messed up. In chapter 6, we're going to see this. There was a phrase that was floating around the Corinthian church and went like this. All things are lawful. All things are lawful. We have been set free in Jesus. Therefore, since we have eternal life and it's secure, we don't need to worry about what we do with our bodies. Okay? And Paul's going to address that next chapter. It could be that they think the same thing here. We are free in Christ, we don't have to address the sin among our members. That's a possibility. It's also possible that they're so busy fighting with one another that they don't have the time and the energy to confront sin. I think it's very likely that this member who is sinning is rich and powerful and influential, probably well-known even outside of the Christian community, and they are showing partiality and are unwilling to confront his sin because of who he is. Paul doesn't tell us. He doesn't tell us exactly why. All that matters to him is that they have not addressed the sin, and so Paul feels compelled that he must step in and exercise his apostolic authority and urge them to exercise discipline on the man. This is Paul's solution. Church discipline. Read with me in verse 3, chapter 5. Paul says, For I, on my part, though I am absent in body, but I'm present in spirit, have already judged him who has so committed this as though I were present. In the name of our Lord Jesus, when you are assembled and I with you in spirit, with the power of our Lord Jesus, deliver such a one to Satan for the destruction of his flesh so that his spirit may be saved in the day of the Lord Jesus. That's what Paul says. I have judged him. It's been reported among you. I've received a report back and I've investigated everything fully and I've reached a verdict. I've reached a conclusion that this is clearly sin. And it's clearly a sin that must be acted upon. This is my verdict and this is the punishment. 
Remove him from fellowship. That's what church discipline means. Remove this man from your gathered time of worship. Remove him from taking the Lord's Supper, the bread and the cup. Remove him from fellowship even in your home. Notice what he says in verse 2. The very end. Remove this man from your midst. Verse 7. Clean out the old leaven. Which is a metaphor that we'll talk about later. That means remove him. Take him out. Verse 11. Do not even associate with this so-called brother. The end of verse 11. Do not even eat with such a one. Verse 13. Remove the wicked man from among yourselves. Paul says it in several ways. Several different places throughout the chapter. It's clear what he means. He means remove that man. Don't let him into fellowship any longer. Okay, that helps us understand what he means in verse 5 when he says, deliver such a one to Satan. That is, remove him from the protective authority of the body of Christ. Because outside of that protective authority, which he has refused, having been confronted for his sin, outside of that protective authority, we know that the whole world lies in the power of the evil one. So turn him out. And I acknowledge this is a really tough topic. And it's very complex when you, when you move beyond 1 Corinthians 5 and you begin to see how this is played out in individuals' lives and in families' lives. It's very difficult. It's very complex. How do you apply the specifics? Paul clearly is trying to create a, a paradigm or a pattern because he says, uh, such a one, a man like this, and sin like this. He's saying, these are principles that I teach throughout all of the churches. And so what I'm going to try to do is I'm going to try to lay out principles. And if you have questions about how maybe this should play out in a specific situation, then please feel free to call Buck Anderson, (laughs) 693-2911-Extension 250. And Buck will take care of all of your questions and I'll just deal with the generalities. Okay. All right. Let's move on. Paul's solution, church discipline. What does this look like? When do we exercise church discipline? I want you to read from the chapter five and verse nine. Paul said, I wrote to you in my letter, a previous letter, not to associate with immoral people. I did not at all mean with the immoral people of this world or with the covetous and swindlers or with idolaters, for then you would have to be taken out of the world. But I actually wrote to you not to associate with any so-called brother. In other words, Paul says, this is only for professing Christians in the church. Well, so when I wrote to you, In a previous letter that has been lost, don't associate with immoral people. I wasn't talking about the world, because then you'd have to leave the world, but the church has been left in the world so that the church can interact with the world and be salt and light for the world. That's why we're here, right? Look at the example of Jesus. He associated, he ate meals with the most immoral people in his own culture. He didn't participate in their behavior, but he associated with them. He, he, He joined with them in meals so that he could influence them toward believing in him as Messiah and entering into the kingdom of God. Paul says, I wasn't telling you to disassociate from the world. That's why the church is here. I'm talking about sin that is inside of the body of Christ. That's what this applies to. And Paul is not doubting this man's salvation when he calls him a so-called believer. He's talking about a self-professed believer. Treat him as a believer but treat him as a believer who is locked into his sin and who is unrepentant. So it's only for professing Christians who are guilty of certain kinds of sin. Verse 11. But actually I wrote to you not to associate with any self-professed brother, someone in the church. 
If he is an immoral person or covetous or an idolater or a reviler or a drunkard or a swindler, not even to eat with such a one. For what do I have to do with judging outsiders? Do you not judge those who are within the church? Those who are with outside, who are on the outside, God judges, but you remove the wicked man from among yourselves. And Paul lists here several types of sin that must be addressed with church discipline. The first is immorality. Right? The specific point that raised the issue for them was incest. But Paul uses the general word for immorality here, which means sex outside of the boundaries of marriage. Okay? He generalizes it. Then he also adds greed and theft. Okay? A covetous swindler. That if someone is so greedy inside the church that he defrauds people and he takes from them. An idolater. Someone who continues in their context to worship with you, but also worship in the temples. An abusive person, that is the word reviler, a person who is abusive of others, a drunkard, an addict. Those are the things that Paul addresses here, but you'll look elsewhere in the New Testament and you'll see these added. A heretical teaching, divisiveness in the church. He will tell Titus, reject a factious man after a second and third and fourth warning. Reject him. He's creating division in the church. Unwillingness to work. If you have someone in your midst and they're able to work, but they're not providing for themselves or for others, instead they're a busybody and they're running around and they're creating disorder and division in the church, address that. Now, this list is not meant to be exhaustive, right? This isn't everything that should be addressed. It's illustrative. Wisdom would tell us there are probably other things that should be addressed with church discipline. But the point is this. It's professing Christians guilty of serious sin that is damaging to the community and they are unwilling to repent. They've been confronted with the sin, but they're unwilling to repent. I'd summarize it like this. Professing Christians guilty of certain serious sins, damaging to the body, unwilling to repent, by which I mean this, they will not confess. They won't agree that the behavior is sin. That's what confession means, to say the same thing, agree that that's sin. They will not commit to change. They will not get help to change. It's not talking about somebody who's been confronted on the, the issue and acknowledged, yes, that's sin and I need help and seeking after help, but someone who has said no. I've known folks who will say, yeah, that's sin, but I'm not turning away from it. Those are the kinds of issues that Paul is addressing. Now, I've heard it said before on many occasions. I've had people say, Brian, all sin is the same. You've heard that? All sin is the same. And there is an element in which that's true, right? Any single sin can separate us from God. Wages of sin is death. Death meaning separation. Our sin, even the smallest of sin, creates a barrier between us and God. That's why Jesus Christ died. He died to pay for all of our sins. The things that we might call little sins and things we might call, wow, those are big sins. Christ is enough. He paid for all of those things. And and any one of those sins individually could separate us from God. Christ died so that we could bridge that gulf between us and God. And we cannot earn a relationship with God. There's nothing that we can do to overcome even the smallest of our sins. In that sense, all sin is alike. All sin separates. All sin has been paid for by Jesus. When we believe, we have the forgiveness of our entire debt and we have eternal life. But there's another sense in which sin is different. Because some sins 
have greater consequences in this life and at the judgment seat of Christ. If I come home day after day and I'm impatient with my wife, I'm not filled with the Holy Spirit and so I'm impatient and I get a little snippy and I'm sarcastic with my wife, you know, that is sin and I need to confess it. And it has an effect on my relationship with my wife. On the other hand, if I come home drunk every day and I beat my wife and I have an affair or multiple affairs, those sins have a much more damaging effect on the relationship. See what I'm saying? In that sense, all sin is not the same. All sin doesn't have the same effect on our relationships, nor on our relationship with the body of Christ, nor on our relationship and our fellowship with God. What Paul is talking about here is serious, blatant sin for which a person has dug in their heels and said, no, I will not repent. That's when we step in and exercise church discipline. How do we do it? What does it look like? I'm going to give you five steps, uh, five biblical steps uh, in the exercise of church discipline. One of the things you're going to notice is that Paul skips over the first few of these. And the reason that he does skip over those in 1 Corinthians 5 is because this sin is already well known throughout the entire community, probably throughout the entire, uh, not just Christian community, but the Corinthian community as well. So the first is this, examine yourself. Jesus put it like this. See a speck in your brother's eye? Check for the log in your own first, right? Are you pure before God? Is there unconfessed sin in your own life? Deal with that so that you can see clearly to address the sin in someone else. As Paul will say in the book of Galatians, brothers, if someone is caught in a sin, you who are spiritual should restore him gently, but watch yourself or you also may be tempted. But you first go before God, see, is, is there any area of sin in my own life that I need to confess? Am I clean before God? Am I ready to point out and confront this sin in someone else's life? Start with yourself. Start with yourself, because in entering into that confrontation of someone else's sin, Satan can use that as an opportunity to tempt you as well. Be ready, be spiritually prepared for this confrontation. Okay? Second, Confront privately. Jesus addresses this in Matthew chapter 18. He says, If your brother sins, go and show him his fault in private. If he listens to you, you have won your brother. Why do we go in private first? Because our objective is not to humiliate someone. We don't go from zero to 90. From no confrontation to bring it public. Because our objective is not to humiliate. Our objective is to restore And if you can restore someone privately, that that means turning back, repenting, turning their back on sin and moving back toward God is so much easier if it hasn't gone out so broadly. It says in 1 Peter 4, verse 8, Above all, keep fervent in your love for one another because love covers a multitude of sins. And what Peter means by this, this is is from Proverbs chapter 10. Peter doesn't mean that that love hides sin or love sweeps sin under the carpet. What he means is when we love someone, we want to help them repent. I remember my dad when I was a kid saying that when we sin, it's like we've backed ourselves into a corner. And what we need is we need someone who loves us deeply who will help us move out of the corner. If we go first in private, we help that person move quickly out of the corner. Okay, So, Jesus says, first, go privately. 
When the person will not respond to that confrontation, bring help. If he does not listen to you, take one or two more with you so that by the mouth of two or three witnesses, every fact may be confirmed. This is not for the purpose of gossip or spreading someone else's story. It's to add moral pressure toward repentance. So you find someone or two that know that person well, love that person and care about that person to increase the moral pressure. Take two or three along with you. If they don't respond to that, take an elder. Matthew 18, 17. If he refuses to listen to them, tell it to the church. In our context, the authority in our church is our elder board. Pastors in our context at Grace Bible Church, pastors are not elders. So pastors do not have the authority to exercise church discipline. The elders exercise church discipline, for which I say, yes. (laughs) That makes me so happy that I don't have that responsibility. This is how it works in our context. A lot of times these issues will come first to us as a staff. And we investigate and we see, yeah, this really is a very serious thing. We turn it to, to, over to our elders. And our elders pray. And our elders investigate. And our elders discuss. And our elders go two or three. Our elders do not go individually because elders, even though they are the highest authority in our church, do not exercise their authority as individuals, but as a group. That's why we have a plurality of elders. So when they speak on these issues, they must speak unanimously, and that's where the power and the authority come from, because it is a group. And I will tell you, as a group, they are also responsible to hold one another accountable. There's no one in our church without accountability, because ultimately the authority in our church is Jesus Christ. So Paul even addresses this in 1 Timothy chapter 5. He says, Don't let anyone bring you an accusation as an individual against an elder. Make sure it's with two or three witnesses. And then, having investigated, if an elder is guilty of sin, confront the elder. Hold them accountable. And the way this has worked in our church in the past is sometimes the accountability comes in proclamation to the entire church on a Sunday morning. Sometimes it comes at a business meeting just with the membership of the church. Sometimes it's a home church group or an adult Sunday school class, depending on how involved the person is or the level of authority that they have within the church. I will tell you, every time we have had to do this, I have seen our elders labor in prayer and and grieve and weep. I take it exceptionally seriously. It's never entered into lightly when it gets to this point in time when sin must be confronted and the person must be publicly rebuked. That's the fifth step. Remove and isolate the unrepentant sinner. Matthew 18, 17. If he refuses to listen even to the church, let him be to you as a Gentile and a tax collector. Remove him and isolate him. That is, he's not a part of the fellowship when we gather and we worship. He's not welcome at the Lord's Supper. Paul even says, don't even welcome him into your home. Now, I've had folks ask me before, well, okay, how do, I apply that then, that, how do I apply this if it's within my own family? What if it's a family member who's come under church discipline? What if I have a family member who's not even a Christian, but they're behaving in a really destructive way within the boundaries of our family? You know, sometimes these same principles have to apply. You have to set boundaries. 
I'll tell you, it's really challenging. It's complex. It requires a, a great amount of wisdom. And if you're wrestling with how to apply this maybe within your own family, please come talk to me, one of the pastors or one of our elders, and we'll, we'll pray with you and we'll think with you and process with you. How do you apply it within your family? But where I want to camp out in our remaining time is this. What's, what's the motivation? Why do we do it? What's the purpose? What are we hoping to accomplish? And I want to give you three items. The first is this. We do this for the good of the church. We do it for the good of the church. Read with me in chapter 5 and verse 6. Paul says, Your boasting is not good. Do you not know that a little leaven leavens the whole lump of dough? Clean out the old leaven so that you may be a new lump, just as you are in fact unleavened, for Christ our Passover also has been sacrificed for us. Therefore, let us celebrate the feast not with old leaven, nor with the leaven of malice and wickedness, but with the unleavened bread of sincerity and truth. Paul draws upon an Old Testament imagery. He's drawing upon the imagery of the Feast of Unleavened Bread and then the Passover. And his idea is this. Leaven is like sin. And if you put a little bit of leaven, it doesn't matter how small, just a little bit of leaven into a, a lump of dough, eventually that entire lump of dough will be affected by the leaven. Leaven is like sin. And sin can become pervasive it is not, if it isn't dealt with immediately. And so the Jewish families, before Passover, they would go throughout the house and they would remove all of the leaven as a symbol of removing all of their sin. It would be a time of confession. Paul says, remove that sin because sin becomes pervasive. And I will tell you, I've seen in churches that are unwilling to exercise church discipline, they become powerless. It it guts the power of the church when they are unwilling to deal with sin. Why? Because God is holy. And as God's people, we are called upon to reflect the holiness of God. Paul says, Clean out the, uh, the leaven. Why? Because you are, in fact, unleavened. Your identity is that you belong to God, so behave consistent with your identity. Because Christ, our Passover, has been sacrificed for us. Remember, in Israel's history, the Passover lamb was sacrificed, and as a result, after the Passover lamb was sacrificed, God was able to rescue and redeem Israel to himself. They became his people. Paul says, Jesus is our Passover lamb. He has rescued and redeemed us from sin, so we belong to him. So now behave consistent with your identity as the people of God. God is holy, you be holy. If you love the church, if you love the church, and you love God and you love his holiness, then you have to take sin seriously. 1 Timothy chapter 5, Paul wrote, Those who continue in sin rebuke in the presence of all so that the rest also will be fearful of sinning. That is, so that we will know the fear of the Lord. We will revere him and honor him as a holy God. Second, for the good of the world. Chapter 5, verse 1, Paul says, It is actually reported that there is immorality among you, an immorality of such a kind as does not even exist among the Gentiles. Paul says that the people among whom you live have a right to ask, Why bother with Jesus? What's so different with Jesus? There's nothing different in your life. In fact, you do things that we wouldn't even think of doing. Why should we even consider Jesus Christ? If we love the world, we will live holy. Because the world needs to see 
transformed lives. That's why God has left us in the world, people. That we would live differently, transformed by the power of the Spirit. The world needs to see that. The world needs to see us take sin seriously. How can the world take sin seriously if we don't take sin seriously? I remember when I was a little kid, uh, I got in trouble with my mom one time. And uh, she said, said, I have to spank you. I have to discipline you. And I remember very vividly because there, there was, she, she spanked us with a spoon and I actually tried to destroy the spoon one time and I melted a corner of it. I put it on the oven stove and she caught me. And so the, the spoon remained, but it had this, this melted edge and it was kept in a particular drawer and I could hear the drawer opening from anywhere in the entire house, right? There was just a sound. I knew that's the spoon drawer and the spoon drawer was opening and the spoon was going to come out. But my mom hated to spank us. So she had to discipline us. And I hear the drawer open and she gets the spoon out and she's walking toward me. And my mom was crying. And my mom was crying because she had to spank us because she hated to spank us. And, and I will tell you, my mom did not spank hard, right? She didn't, she wasn't a hard spanker. And so I saw my mom coming at me and she was crying and she had the spoon and I, I just started laughing. <laughs> and then my mom stopped crying and, and then I stopped laughing and I never laughed again, right? I never laughed again because then I started to take mom seriously when the drawer opened. <laughs> Believers in Jesus Christ, we need to take God seriously and you take sin seriously. Why? Because God is holy and we revere him, but also because we love those who are lost and they need to see our lives as different. They need to see our lives as different. Third, For the good of the sinner. For the good of the sinner. Read with me again. Verse 5, it says, Deliver such a one to Satan for the destruction of his flesh so that his spirit may be saved in the day of the Lord Jesus. This is a really challenging verse to interpret. Let me see if I can help a little bit. It says literally, Deliver such a one to Satan for the destruction of the flesh so that the spirit may be saved in the day of the Lord Jesus. In other words, that personal pronoun, his, is not actually in the text. It's a definite article. So, what that means is this could refer to the church or the unrepentant sinner. Are you following me? If it refers to the church, what Paul is saying is, put that man outside of the church, and in so doing, you are removing that fleshly influence, that sinful influence, outside of the church. It's gone now, because you put the person out. And the result will be when the church stands before God in its evaluation, the church will be saved from further judgment. Okay, that's one option. I think a better option is, as my translation indicates, that it's the person. Okay, So deliver that person to Satan for the destruction of his flesh so that his spirit may be saved in the day of the Lord Jesus. Now, what does that mean if it's talking about the unrepentant sinner? There are a couple options, depending on how you define some of your terms. Okay, The flesh could refer to his physical body, right? So put him outside of the protective realm of the authority of the church, and in so doing, he will die, okay? Now, there, there's precedent for that, right? Acts chapter 5, Ananias and Sapphira lie to the Holy Spirit, and they're dead. 1 Corinthians chapter 11, that we'll study next semester, there are believers who are coming to the Lord's Supper, and they have unconfessed, deep, abiding sin, And some have gotten physically sick, and Paul says some have even died. So there is precedent. It could be that Satan is the agent of their physical discipline, even death. That's one possibility. Or it could be that his flesh refers to his fleshly lusts. I think this is more likely. 
his fleshly lusts. Because fleshly is the term that Paul used in 1 Corinthians 3 to refer to the immature Christian. So what that means is this man is put outside of the protective boundaries of the authority of the church. He is delivered over to Satan. Okay, whole world lies in the power of the evil one. And outside of the protective boundaries of the authority of the church, Satan begins to come after him. And it may be uh, spiritual attack, emotional attack, could even be physical attack in his own body. And that attack leads him to repentance. He turns away from his own fleshly lusts and turns back toward God. Second Corinthians chapter 12, Paul says, I was given a thorn in my flesh. He says that thorn was actually a messenger from Satan that God allowed to buffet me so that I wouldn't exalt myself. My flesh would be tempted to be proud, and so God allowed Satan to provoke me. Probably something physical for Paul. Why? So that his flesh wouldn't take over and he wouldn't become proud. And he said, God, take the thorn from me. Take the thorn from me. Take the thorn from me. And God said, nope. My grace is sufficient for you. So sometimes Satan becomes the unwitting agent of God's work in a believer's life. What that means then is that his salvation is not from hell, but from further sin and further discipline. Paul says, turn this one over to Satan, that is, put him outside of the realm of the church for the destruction of his flesh. That is, as he comes under Satan's attack, maybe in his physical body, maybe emotionally and mentally and spiritually, that that suffering of being separated from the body of Christ and his friendships and his fellowships drives him to say no to his flesh and say yes to God and turn back. And in so doing, he stops sinning and he begins to live rightly with God. And he is delivered from future sin and future discipline future loss at the judgment seat of Christ so that he's turned back and he may again stand before Jesus Christ on the judgment seat of Christ one day and hear, well done, good and faithful servant. Why do we do this? We do this because we love. We do this because we want the best for one another. And so we say hard things to one another so that we would turn from sin and pursue holiness. James chapter five, James is making the same point. He says, my brethren, If any among you, who's he talking about? Genuine believers. My brethren, if there are any among you who strays from the truth and one of you turns him back, let him who know, let him know that he who turns a sinner from the error of his way will save his soul from death and will cover a multitude of sins. Again, James and Paul aren't talking about salvation from hell. They're talking about salvation from loss. To save the soul from death is a proverbial statement. It means to be rescued from physical discipline in this lifetime. Because God loves us, he disciplines us. And the discipline occurs in a variety of ways. And sometimes the most intense form of discipline is that God ends a believer's life. So that they won't continue in sin any longer. And James says, if you love someone, turn them from their sin. Go to them. Confront them. Deal with the sin. Apparently, The Corinthian church actually listened to Paul on this occasion. They confronted the sin in this man's life. He didn't repent, and so they put him outside of fellowship. And when he was outside of fellowship, he suffered. And he repented, and he turned back to the Lord. I believe Paul addresses this situation in his next letter, 2 Corinthians chapter 2. He says, 
Sufficient for such a one is this punishment which was inflicted by the majority. So that on the contrary, you should rather forgive and comfort him. Otherwise, such a one might be overwhelmed by excessive sorrow. Wherefore, I urge you, reaffirm your love for him. See what Paul is saying? He's saying, you church, be like the prodigal father, that recklessly extravagant loving father whose son leaves and squanders the wealth. And the father stands and he looks on the horizon and he waits and he waits and he waits for that son. And as soon as he sees that the son has turned, that has repented, he's turned from his sin, the father rushes out to meet him and embraces him and brings him back and welcomes him into fellowship. That's what Paul is saying. That one has been isolated and now he has turned and he is suffering. He could be overwhelmed with that sorrow, so go and reaffirm your love for him and bring him back into the fellowship and restore him because the point of discipline is not revenge or retaliation, but restoration. That's why we address sin. That's why God deals with sin in our lives. Hebrews chapter 12. For those whom the Lord loves, he disciplines for our good so that we may share his holiness. All discipline for the moment seems not to be joyful, but sorrowful. Yet to those who've been trained by it, afterwards it yields the peaceful fruit of righteousness. God is a loving, heavenly father. He's a holy God. And because he's a loving, heavenly father and a holy God, he deals with sin in our lives because he wants us to experience the peaceful fruit of righteousness. He wants us to experience all that he has for us. And if we love one another, we will do the same for one another. Two thoughts as we conclude. Two points for application. First is this. We are accountable to one another. We live in such an individualistic culture. What I do in private is my business in private. Keep your nose out of my business. If you're a member of the body of Christ, you belong to Christ and you belong to the rest of the believers around you. And you know what? That is a gift from God. It's protection. It's protection from sin. It's also a a tool through which God creates holiness in our lives. That's a gift from God. Accountability is a gift from God. When we're walking in the fullness of the Spirit, we acknowledge that wonderful gift from God, which is the body of Christ. We belong to one another. Now, a corollary truth is this. We are responsible for one another. If you love me and you see me in sin, you will confront that sin. You'll take the risk even to sacrifice the friendship because it's more important that I stop sinning than that I like you. If we love one another, we deal with sin in one another's life. We are responsible for one another. That means you need to have a group of friends and family around you that are close enough to confront you and that you are close enough with that you are willing to confront them on their sin. That's what the body of Christ is for. So, people, let's be holy. And let's help one another be holy. Let's pray. Father, I thank you that you have removed the debt of our sin completely in Jesus Christ. You've given us eternal life freely. But I also thank you, Father, that you are unwilling to allow us to stay as we are. But you work in our hearts and our minds and our spirits to transform us into the very image of Christ, that we would be like Jesus. I thank you, Father, that you've given us to one another to help us along that pathway. I pray, Father, that we would embrace that. We'd embrace accountability from one another and we would embrace our responsibility to one another. 
And Father, I pray for this church in particular that we would be holy. First, so that we would honor you as you are, but also so that we would be a bright and powerful light to this world. On behalf of Jesus Christ. It's in his name we pray. Amen. God bless you. Have a great week blessing one another. See you next week.